In his book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis says that people in general are haunted by the idea of a sort of behavior they ought to practice. People are haunted. They're, they're, it's, even though they don't want to admit it, they, they, they know that there is a moral standard for our behavior. Uh, even people who say, I determine my own truth. I make my own rules. If pushed far enough, will say, no, that, that's wrong. Or that's not fair. Um, but how can you speak in terms of wrong and right and fair and unfair if there is no absolute moral standard? Uh, Lewis put it like this. He said, whenever you meet a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining it's not fair. A nation may say treaties do not matter, but then the next minute they spoil their case by saying that that particular treaty they want to break was an unfair one. But if treaties do not matter, and if there is no such thing as right and wrong, in other words, if there is no law of nature, what is the difference between a fair treaty and an unfair treaty? Have they not let the cat out of the bag and shown that whatever they say, they really know the law of nature just like anyone else? Um, it, put it like this. If, if <clears throat> you were to say, well, I don't believe there is any absolute right or any absolute truth, any absolute right or wrong. Uh, well, okay, what if I were to take my truck after the worship service and just plow over your car? I'm pretty sure that most everybody at that point would start saying, well, hey, that, you can't do that. That's wrong. Well, why is that wrong if there is no absolute right or wrong? That, that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Uh, why is it then that, 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 that people have this idea, even though they don't want to admit it, why do people have this idea of a moral law that they can't get away from? I mean, if the universe is just time and chance and evolution and matter and just billions of years, that can't create more obligation. Uh, an evolutionary world with no God behind it, with no lawgiver, there's no moral obligation in that sort of world. Moral obligations only exist in the context of personal relationships. And absolute moral obligations only exist in the context of a relationship with an absolute person. In other words, if there's a moral law that we are all held to, then there has to be a moral law giver, someone who stands above that moral law. Well, where do we find a being like that? We find him here in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, let me give you a little bit of background of this. Uh, Isaiah, through the first few chapters of Isaiah, has been busy confronting the people of God with their sin. And, and, and that's basically, he's just been laying into them for about five chapters. But in chapter 6, Isaiah himself is confronted with the God behind this moral standard. And he realizes that it's not just all those troublesome Israelites who have been breaking God's law, but that he himself is a lawbreaker as well, that he's got a problem. And it's a problem that he really can't fix. And he, he realizes that only God can do something about it. And so what I want you to ask yourself today as we look at this text is, do I know this God? Do I love this God? Do I delight to serve this God who reveals himself to us in the pages of the Bible? Or am I simply like many of the people of Isaiah's day, 
knowing facts about God, going through religious motions. But when it comes down to it, God himself is very unreal to me. And so we're going to look at the God who is, the God who heals, and the God who sins. But let's read this text together first. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to read the whole chapter beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is failed. The holy seed is its stump. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, this is your word, and uh, we pray right now that you would enable me to, to explain it and speak it clearly. Uh, we pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear and hearts to believe uh, the truth of the scriptures. Uh, this is your work, Father, and so we pray that you might work among us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to do as we're talking about this text this morning is to look at the God who is. The God who is. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you were just overcome by what you were witnessing? Maybe you were meeting a famous person. Maybe you were at some spectacular rock concert or at a sporting event where something just crazy happens. Uh, a, a friend of mine, he was a chaplain in the Navy, was describing to me what it was like to be on the deck of an aircraft carrier as planes were taking off and landing at night. All the, the, the noise and the fury and the, the flashes of light and the, the commotion. He says, just enough to take your breath away to be in a place like that. That's the kind of scene I think we're confronted with in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah has a vision where he walks into the very throne room of God. He sees God seated on, seated on a throne, the text tells us, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. He sees these beings called seraphim, which are these angelic beings with six wings. Uh, with two, they, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. 
Uh, with two of the wings, they're, they're, they're using them to fly, and they're crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The, the doorposts are shaking, and the, the whole room is, is filled with smoke. Now, what does that tell us about who God is? What does that tell us about who God is? Uh, for one thing, it tells us he's the king, that he's the king. Uh, I can't help but think about the, the line from the, the lion, the, the, the witch in the wardrobe, uh, where uh, Mr. Beaver says to the, the Pevensey children, safe, he's talking about Aslan the lion, safe, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Uh, we're confronted with here in Isaiah 6 the fact that God is the king. Now, what does that mean if God's the king? Well, it means that he's in charge, uh, and we're his subjects. He makes the rules. Uh, he's not elected. You, you know, we don't vote him out after four years if we don't like the direction of the universe. Like, okay, we're going to have to pick somebody else now. I don't think he really cares that much about his approval rating. Uh, people who try to give God advice tend to come out on the short end of that. Uh, you, can ask, you can ask Job what that feels like. Uh, there's no Congress, there's no judiciary to balance his power. He's the king and the judge and the jury and the legislative branch. He, he's all of that rolled into one. Now, most Americans uh, are comfortable with the idea of God as long as we get to decide what God's like, as long as we get to determine what he's going to be like. <clears throat> and it's almost like you've got a Nintendo and you're designing a, a, a me on the Nintendo. Those of you who play Nintendo, you design a little character to represent you in the game. And you can put different hair and different color skin and glasses or no glasses and beard or no beard and big ears, little ears, whatever. You, you do all this stuff with this character you design uh, for the Nintendo. I think we're like that with God a lot of times. I think God should be like this. He should look like this. And he should be tolerant of these habits in my life that I like to do. He should bring me comfort. He should affirm my decisions and, and support me and give me a feeling of peace. And so whether we consciously do it or not, we have this way of designing God. And very few of us, when we are designing our God, would put sovereign ruler of the universe. Tells me what to do punishes disobedience, governs the world as he sees fit. He makes the rules. We don't design our God in that way. We think of, we'd rather design a more docile, user-friendly God who's simply there to serve me and meet my needs and expectations. But, but think about that for a minute. If that's what so many Americans tend to do, if I'm designing God, if I can determine what God is like, Who's really God in that picture? Who's really God in that picture? I'm God. And the idea of God that I've come up with simply exists. It's a figment of my imagination that exists to serve me. And so we're a nation of people who like the idea of God. We're okay with the idea of God. But at the end of the day, we really think of ourselves as God and of God as our servant. And if you think about it, that's really consistent with who we are. 
Uh, we talked about last week when we were talking about uh, children obey your parents, that, that none of us like authority. Children don't like the authority of their parents. We don't like to be under authority ourselves. We don't want to be told what to do by anybody. Not our parents, not our employer, uh, not the lady at Sam's that day when I was trying to go out the, her door and I only had one item and there was nobody in line and she kept saying, you got to go out the other door. Like, well, there's nobody here. Who are you, Sam Walton, to tell me which door to go out? Um, we, we, we don't like to be told what to do. Who are you, God, to tell me what life is supposed to be like? And so Isaiah's vision, for one thing, is telling us simply, the God who is, is the king. He's the king. He's a ruler. And we're not. The second thing we see here about the God who is, is that he is awesome uh, and majestic. Uh, this is one of those times where I really wish we could have church, like, or have worship in uh, an IMAX theater uh, to, to get a sense of this, or on the deck of an aircraft carrier, or maybe on the side of Everest during an avalanche, although that might not work out too well for us. Because, because this is kind of hard to put in the words, but you've kind of got this combination of this wow, this oh my goodness factor, combined with being scared half to death at the same time. I mean, that, that's what Isaiah is experiencing here. Uh, that, that, you know, being on Everest in the avalanche might give us a drop in the bucket of what it would be like to experience being in the throne room of God. The scene is meant to communicate to us that God is the most awesome and majestic of all beings. And here's the thing. We don't just see his glory in the throne room. We see it out here. We see it every time we open our eyes. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, as she put it this way, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. And only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. As, as you see the glory of God spilling out of the throne room, as it were, and spilling into the world around you, do you ever stop and take off your shoes, so to speak? Are you ever overcome by his glory? Are you just sitting around picking blackberries, kind of oblivious to the whole thing? Has, has his glory moved you to worship him? And to acknowledge him for who he is. Are you, are, are you just blissfully ignorant? Or, or even worse, are you competing with him for glory? I'm glorious because I'm successful and, and I'm beautiful and I'm accomplished. And, and look at what I've done. Are you ignorant of God's glory or even worse, are you competing with him or trying to compete with him for glory? Well, <clears throat> there's a third thing we see here about the God who is. Uh, and that's that he is holy. He's holy. And it's probably the main thing here. Uh, we read here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, what does that mean when we say that? Right? That's one of those kind of Christian words. What, what do we mean when we say that God is holy? The, the idea is that God is separate and distinct because of his moral majesty. He's this morally beautiful and perfect being with no flaw in him. And the reason that people come undone 
in the presence of God is not just that the room is shaking and it feels like F-18s are taking off all over the place. And it feels like the room's going to blow up. The, the, the reason that people come undone in the presence of God is because he is this perfectly moral and holy being. He's absolute moral purity. And that exposes our sin. The absolute purity of God exposes what we are not. It exposes the thoughts of our heart and the lust of our eyes and our pride and our willful, willfulness. Everything about us that is wrong is exposed by this holiness of God. Uh, it, it's kind of like we're trying to hide in the corner of this dark basement, hoping that our sin is going to remain hidden from God. And then this powerful floodlight comes into the corner and exposes us for who we are. But it's not just anybody holding the light. It's God himself who is the light who comes and exposes us for what we are. And we fall apart. See, the, the God who is doesn't just say, hey, you know what, whatever, however you think life ought to be lived, just go ahead and do that. I'm good with that. But he is absolute holiness absolute moral purity a, a blazing fire who exposes the darkness of our hearts and that's why Isaiah says woe is me woe, he spent five chapters saying to Israel woe is you repent and then finally at this point Isaiah looks at himself as he's in the presence of God and he says woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Uh, Job had a very similar reaction when he had been demanding his day in court with God, and he finally got it, and this is what he says. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter, in Luke chapter 5, when he gets a glimpse of who Jesus really is, says, Go away from me, Lord. Just go away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. That's the God who is. That's the God who lies behind the moral standard that we all know is there. That's the reason there is a moral standard, because there's not just dust and rocks and molecules at the center of the universe. There is a holy, absolute, absolutely morally pure being at the center of all that there is. And you and I are guests in his house, drinking his water, eating his food, breathing his air, and ignoring the owner of the house. Or maybe worse, assuming that we own the house and presuming to tell God what he should be like or what the house should be like or how he should be taking care of our house. But when you realize who God really is, when you, when you finally get this sense of, of who he is and all his moral purity, it's like he's just ripping the roof off that house and, and looking down at you, and you're completely undone. Because you realize this is, this is not my house, and I've been trashing the place. I, I, am, I am undone by my own sin, which is what Isaiah says, woe is me. For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. Now, if, if you have that kind of reaction 
to this text, the type that Isaiah had, if you have that type of reaction to meeting God, the text is going to offer hope for you. But if you don't have that type of reaction, then no matter how religious you may say you are, I'm afraid that you haven't really gotten it yet, that you haven't really met the God who is. But if you have, have had this reaction, there's hope for you. Because the owner of this house is also a gracious owner, a kind owner. He responds graciously uh, to those who, who become undone by the fact that they've been living in his house and trashing it and, and breathing his air and drinking his water without any acknowledgement of the fact that he is king. There is good news because this owner, while he is holy, is also gracious to sinners. And we see that in verse 6 and 7 uh, where we meet the God who heals. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that, had taken, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So the coal, that, what's, what's the deal with this? The coal is taken from the altar. The altar is the place in the Old Testament uh, where blood sacrifices were, were offered. And so the seraphim takes this coal and he applies it to the lips of Isaiah. Um, the sins of God's people had to be atoned for. Our sin separates us from God. Uh, what the Old Testament is showing us is that someone has to, to take the punishment for our sin. That someone has to die in our place. That's the, that's the just penalty for our rebellion against the holy God. And so in the Old Testament you have these animal sacrifices that were actually offered in place of you. Like here, I would take my, my sacrifice, and this is being offered in place of me, and this animal is punished instead of me being punished. And so the seraphim takes this coal from the altar and touches Isaiah to say, look, the sacrifice of the altar applies to you. What has happened at the altar, the atonement for sins, applies to you. You are cleansed. Your sin is atoned for. It's okay because it's been taken care of by God. Your sin's been forgiven. Now the New Testament tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and everything that was sacrificed, it wasn't really sufficient to turn away God's wrath. That those animals had no power in themselves to, to completely and for all time remove God's wrath. But instead, they were pointing to a greater sacrifice. The lambs that were slaughtered were pointing to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would die on the cross for our sins. The blood of Jesus, not the blood of animals, is the only thing that's really sufficient to turn away the wrath of God, to, 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 to bring about forgiveness for Isaiah, and to bring about forgiveness for you and me. And so, in our text here, instead of obliterating Isaiah, as he had every right to do, God heals him. God forgives him. Do you know that God? The gracious God. The God who heals and forgives the sins of his people. Now, I want to ask a question here. Um, what did Isaiah have to do with God forgiving him? What did, what did Isaiah contribute 
to this. What did he offer to the deal? Nothing. Not his past obedience, not his present obedience, not his future obedience. The only thing Isaiah contributes to him being made well, the only thing Isaiah contributes to his salvation is his sin. That's the only thing he has to offer here. The only thing he does is repent. God, I'm a sinful man and I'm wrong and God heals him. It's entirely an act of God on Isaiah's behalf. Do you know that guy? Do you know that guy? Now, I think a lot of us, maybe for years, you've, you've had this idea of this holy and majestic uh, and awesome God and you can mouth these words about God being the God who saves. But some of us, even though we've heard that over and over, we still are stuck. We still go on and on about how unworthy we are and how undeserving of God's grace. Like we're too bad for Jesus. Like his blood's not enough to atone for our sins. Or like we can somehow contribute feeling bad about our sin. If we can just feel bad enough, that'll somehow contribute to our salvation. Others of us hear it, but we're still trying to make ourselves worthy. We're still trying to offer something to the deal. Yeah, 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 I hear the gospel, but, but, but here, let me do something, God, so that I can really be worthy of this salvation that you grant. Let me throw something into the deal. And this text is saying, you don't add anything. You simply bring your sin and you lay it on Jesus and you receive forgiveness from him. Do you know this God, the God who lets you lay down your sin and walk away from it and have it forgotten and done away with it and completely forgiven? The God who is is the king. He's awesome. He's majestic. He's holy. But he's also a God who heals and forgives sinners. You know this God. Last thing, and, and I'll be brief with this. I want you to see the God who sins. The God who sins. Uh, God sends Isaiah out here. And usually you don't hear this part of the message very often. Um, but if you, the, the second half of this, he sends Isaiah out. But it's with this message of judgment for the people of Israel. Uh, what right did Isaiah have to take this message? Who was he as a sinner to go out and pronounce this message? He was a sinner too. What were his qualifications? The only qualification he had was that he was a sinner who had been forgiven. That God had taken away his sin. And God sent him out. He, he healed him and he sent him out. This time with a message of judgment. That, that Israel was going to have to go through a time of judgment. That healing would come again. But that wasn't coming quite yet. God sent Isaiah out as a messenger. And God sends messengers out. He sends his people out as messengers today. Sinful people who realize their sin, who've met the holy God and been undone, but have also been healed by the saving blood of Jesus Christ, are then sent out as God's ambassadors with this good news of the gospel, telling others not, hey, come be like us. We've got our act together. But hey, we're messed up. But there's a God who heals and a God who forgives. Don't you want to know this God? And so we take this gospel message out. And when we take this gospel message out, one of two things happen when we take the message out. People either believe the message of the gospel and they find life, 
or they disbelieve the message of the gospel and they continue along this path of death, according to the scriptures. And so the message of the gospel in the words of 2 Corinthians either is an aroma of life to you or it's an aroma of death to you if you reject it. What's your reaction to the message? What's your reaction to the message that God is, is sending out even today? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's, that's the message. What's your reaction to it? Is it the aroma of life and freedom and joy? Well, do you know this God? Do you know this God or have you been busy designing your own God? Do you know this God who reveals himself in the passage, in the passages of Scripture? Do you know this God who is awesome, who is glorious, who is holy? But do you know this God who forgives sinners? This God invites you today to rest and to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed on the cross so that your sins might be forgiven as well. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would um, forgive our efforts to try to make you in our image. Um, that you would forgive our idolatry. And that you would help us to see you for who you show yourself to be. God, you are holy and awesome and majestic. You are the king. And Father, we are, we are undone when we see all of that. But God, you have also made provision for us in the gospel in Jesus, in the Lamb who is slain for us. So, Father, I pray this morning that, that we will be undone by our sin, but that we won't despair. That instead of despairing, instead of trying to fix it ourselves, uh, we'll run to Jesus. Would you help us to do that and help us to trust him? We ask in his name. Amen.